Does God care if I'm a doctor or an author or a plumber or a truck driver? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. On the last couple episodes, I've had kind of themes that have been prominent. We talked about last week. Oh, my gosh. Last week, talked about the Upper Limit Challenge. That hit a hot button with a lot of people. A lot of people apparently still dealing with that. Well, it's true. A lot of people are. I still bump up against it. The idea, do I really deserve this level of success? Do I really deserve the opportunity I've been given? Well, that was a lot of fun doing that. Getting back into today, into the questions you all have submitted, and boy, we've got some doozies as always. Great questions. I appreciate you sharing your life with me in this way so we can kind of jump in together and look at them. If you've got a question, just shoot it in to askdan at 48days.com. Here's some of the ones we're going to be looking at today. Dan, is God's will specific for every situation? I'm 65, broke, and on the verge of losing my home. Here's one. I'm scared to make any moves that will disrupt my family, so I drift off to work daily. Dan, I feel guilty wanting to leave a job that pays $150,000 with great benefits and few demands. And if we get to it, somebody wants to know, how do I get money? I can't just wish it to happen. Well, a lot of interesting Topic for discussion there. We're going to jump into those. Here's our quotation for today. It comes from Thomas Edison, who said, Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Well, certainly true. You know, last week I mentioned the sequence that uh, Joanne and I saw in a movie we watched recently where a mother was discouraging her daughter from following her dream of wanting to be a news anchor. And she said, hey, when you were eight years old, it was adorable. When you were 18, it was inspiring. At 28, it's embarrassing. Don't wake until it's heartbreaking. Wow, what do you think about that sequence, following your dream, where it's adorable, inspiring, embarrassing, heartbreaking? Is that why we walk away from our dreams? Is that why the dreams we had when we were an eight-year-old are no longer in our lives today? Well, That tends to be a continuing theme as well. We'll reference back to that in some of the questions. Well, I've got a couple good news items I want to share, and then we'll jump right into these hot topics. Here's one. When a woman's car feels and she can't afford a tow, Canadian teens push it four miles to get her home. Now, these are three teenage boys who (laughs) really took the term Good Samaritan into a whole new stratosphere with an act of amazing kindness last week. This is a little after midnight. This is up in Canada in Font Hill, Ontario. A little after midnight, these three kids were on their way to Tim Horton's coffee shop after a swim when they noticed steam billowing out from under the hood of a car stopped along Highway 20. The boys, who are all car enthusiasts, checked it out, pulled over to lend a hand. After looking under the hood, they told the driver they thought she was probably going to need a new engine and advised her against starting the engine. Well, the woman was visibly upset, said she couldn't afford to have a tow truck come. Well, that's when one of the kids suggested they push the car to her home. 
Now, this is four miles. <laughs> he says, the 15-year-old says, we had nothing better to do. But even if we did, I would like to think we would have helped her anyway. So the teens grabbed their water bottles and pushed the Chevy Cobalt. Now, you may recognize that if you're a car guy. It's a small car, but still a full-size car. They pushed it up a hill, continued for more than two hours along the dark highway, laughing, joking, and appreciating the great workout. Another stranger, Niagara Falls resident Dan Morrison, came along and he decided to drive along behind him with his flashers on to at least keep them safe. So this cooperative rescue mission covered four miles, ended at four o'clock in the morning. We were at the right place at the right time. And this is one of those stories we can look back on in 10 years and say it was one of those crazy things we did, but it was worth it, said 18-year-old Aaron McQuillan. Well, the guy who was following along, being a dad to protect him, posted it on social media with a photo of the superheroes and their phones began blowing up with messages from people they'd never met. Some offered a free meal or Tim Horton's gift card, but the boys were taking none of it. We really appreciate it, but we didn't do this to get free handouts, said McQuillan, who was 18 years old. If I was broken down on the side of the road, I'd love for somebody to stop and help me. Well, Morrison, again, the dad who drove along behind him, uh, father of two, said this is a great reminder that in a seemingly negative word, there's still a lot of good kids out there. Well, I believe that as well. I run into them every day. Good kids who are waiting tables, doing deliveries, working at Home Depot, lots of things. I just run into these great kids. Well, here's another example of that. There were three young men that who were going to go to a Red Sox baseball game last week, and they had four tickets because one of their one of the guys who was going to go with them had a family emergency come up, and he wasn't going to be able to go. So the three men were making their way to the uh, Red Sox baseball park. They're trying to decide who they could invite to the game. And that's when one of the guys, Lugo, got an idea. He said, I wanted to take someone who would appreciate the ticket and have the time of their lives. Well, he eventually found the perfect recipient for the spare ticket after they passed a homeless man. They were walking again toward the ballpark. They, um, in addition to offering the man some money, Lugo asked if he wanted the spare Red Sox ticket, to which John immediately said, heck yes, let's go. So the young man escorted John to his seat, bought him a beer to enjoy during the game. They all sang songs, cheered from the stands, said the, John seemed to really enjoy the atmosphere of the stadium. Uh, before he left the stands, he took a picture of the three new friends. He thanked us for everything. He expressed his gratitude, said maybe the game helped alleviate the stresses that come along with being homeless for a few hours during the game. Since posting the photos to Twitter, Lugo hopes that the pictures will help to show other people just how a small good deed can go. You know, it reminded me, uh, they, they had an extra ticket. They were looking for somebody to give it to. I had a very, very small, tiny incident happen this just this last week. I was in Chicago for a conference on Friday and um, left the conference, went to the airport to get the short flight from Chicago back to Nashville. And there was a mechanical problem that never got resolved. They couldn't get the fuel cap off in the left wing. And it turned out after two hours on board the plane, they decided just to have us get off the plane. Well, then it was about 1030 at night at that point. So they didn't have any way and any other planes. So they uh, put us up at a hotel for the night, uh, put us up at the Hilton, which was certainly a fine hotel, and gave us meal vouchers as well. Well, the next morning I got up and uh, 
got to the airport and realized I really didn't have time for breakfast. I just got there in time for the flight. So I was walking down. Well, I had a meal voucher in my hand. It was 24 bucks. And I thought, I hate to have this go to waste. It was going to expire that day. And I thought, well, who can I give this to? And I I immediately thought, well, you know, there's not a lot of homeless people in the airport, obviously. These are people who are here because uh, they have the funds to travel. And I thought, well, that makes an interesting situation. What if you have something to give and the only people around you are not people in desperate need, but they're people that are doing pretty well as well. And I thought, well, I want to give this to somebody. So I was walking down, there was restaurants on both sides. And I just simply saw a dad and a daughter, you know, traveling, obviously having a good time. I just walked over, they were right close to the walkway. And I just said, Hey, I'm you know, I got this last night because American Airlines put us up overnight. I'm not going to be able to use it. My flight leaves in just a few minutes. I just wanted to give this to you. Well, they thanked me profusely, and that was the end of it. I thought, well, you know, sometimes we need to look for ways, even if it's not some momentous kind of thing to do. What can you do that is just a simple good deed like that? Well, I want to play this clip for you. This will kind of set up the first question and what I mentioned at the opening here. This comes from Jim, and he has a question about God's will. So check this out. So I'm sure this question has been asked a million times, and I was trying to find a way to search for it on your site. But uh, basically, how do you know if God has something specific or, or some general direction as to what you are to do, um, and, and even if it's whether or not to be an employee or an entrepreneur, uh, but how, how do you find that direction, and does God have very specific direction, or is it relatively wide and uh, you just go through the process of finding out if this works, if that works, if you should be doing this or should be doing that, all the while trying to make ends meet while you're trying to figure that out. All right. And thus ends. Uh, that's one of those questions. That's not a small question. That's a big, big question. Well, I wanted to play it just because of the innocent way that Jim asked it. And also because, yes, it is a question that has been asked a million times. I mean, is God's will specific? Does God really care if I am, like I said in the opening, a doctor or an author or an attorney or a you know, dog catcher or a landscaper? I mean, does he really care? Well... I'm going to I'm going to give you a Dan's opinion here because obviously uh, I don't claim to be a theologian but uh this is something that I've studied a lot growing up as I did I mean I grew up on a farm my dad was bivocational he was a pastor for which he was not paid and then he was a farmer to eke out a living to be responsible and keep food on the table so my god's will in my life was spoken into me as you know you're going to be a farmer You know, it doesn't require a whole lot of thinking. You're just going to do what's responsible and do what your mom and dad want you to do. Now, there was the outside chance that, you know, we'd have a missionary come to our little tiny church and speak. And there was always that kind of cloud looming over thinking, oh, my gosh, what if I get a call? 
you know, to be a missionary and God sends me to Africa, you know, where I'm going to live in a grass hut and be miserable all my life. You know, and that it was, there was that fear that if God really had a special call for me, it was going to be something that I naturally would not want to do at all. Well, that opens up a whole lot of can of worms in terms of how do we unpack that? You know, how do we really know God's will? Well, I think there's a whole lot of clues that any of us have about what that is. And I think we can just walk that out in confidence. However, I think we also have to be careful about thinking that, you know, God wants me to buy a Ford rather than a Chevy, because I don't really think that God cares about some of the things like that. Now, here's, the, I look, Abraham Lincoln had something to say about this. The will of God prevails In great contest, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities working just as they do are of the best adaption to affect his purpose. Now, what he's saying, which is really clear, you know, who is God for? In the Civil War. I mean, there were lots of godly Americans on both sides. Now, I don't even want to go to the idea of, you know, if we're at war as a country, is God always on our side? What about the people on the other side who are praying for God's will and believe that they're on God, that God's on their side as well? You know, but people pray for their football team, their place for a parking spot, uh, their country to win. Do you really think that God is against the Dallas Cowboys if you're cheering for the New Orleans Saints. I mean, I think that's where we get into trouble in micromanaging God and making him some kind of a little human robot that cares about those kind of details. I mean, I, I think the Bible doesn't provide a map for life. I think it's a compass. I think we can get general direction for a whole lot of things. But again, I don't think God really cares if I buy a Ford or a Chevy or if I live in Franklin, Tennessee or in Johnsville, Ohio. I I think following God's will is like being on a cruise ship. I mean, there's a whole lot of options for the particular place you're going to lay your head down at night. I don't think he's pointing you to a particular cabin. So, And I think a lot of people wait on a call. You know, I I talk about that a lot, God's calling. I I love the concept, but I think a lot of people are waiting on a call when they have sufficient information to just start moving on ahead. I think a lot of people are waiting on a call like the road to Damascus experience that Paul had. Well, I don't see that happening to a whole lot of people, you know, where God strikes you down in the road and shines a bright light on you and speaks audibly. You know, man, I'd love to have those kind of conversations or those kind of experiences, but I don't see those happening a whole lot. But I don't think that prevents us from moving ahead with confidence in the direction that is clearly indicated. And I think those indicators come from things that God has already told us. That's why, you know, I talk about look at your skills and abilities. Those may be things that you've developed over the years, but you ought to know which ones you've really done well. That's confirmation that you're using some kind of a natural talent that God has given you. When you look at your personality traits, if you're outgoing, gregarious, party kind of animal, fantastic. If you're shy and reticent, like to stay behind the scenes and not really be confronted with being around a lot of people, just as fine, just as good. But embrace those things that you know about yourself. And then those things that I refer to as dreams and passions, 
pay attention to those. Those are legitimate things. If you recognize that it brings you a whole lot of joy to be working on mechanical things, embrace that. If you know that that happens when you're working with small kids, wow, you maybe need to be a school teacher. So there's a lot of things that we know about ourselves. I don't think it's a secret. I think we can walk that out, but I don't think it's that specific. I don't think you need to wait, Jim, on a clear, specific, you need to go to Vanderbilt Graduate School and get your MBA. I don't think that happens. I think you can choose to get a Vanderbilt MBA. You can choose to go to Harvard or to Ohio State University or not go to college at all and be perfectly in line with God's will for your life, because I don't think it's that specific. Here's what we'll just kind of end with this. And again, this is a topic we could park on for all day long and, and all day tomorrow. But out of Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. There you go. I want to claim that as my compass for moving forward. Again, not as a roadmap, but as a compass. God has plans to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me a hope in a future. Now, if you want a book, years ago, when Dave Ramsey and I had a small group of guys that met together every Wednesday morning for 14 years, one of the books we went through was Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen. It is the absolute best book I've ever seen on this issue, how to know how to make decisions if you're trying to please God, Decision Making and the Will of God. Well, thanks for the question. Great question. And, and you're right. It is a topic that's come up a million times. All right. Now, I'm going to, this is a tough one. I got this yesterday. This came in through our customer service at 48 days, just a generic, you know, not, not even addressed to me, but I mean, indirectly, obviously. It says the book 48 Days to the Work You Love was given to me. I'm 65 years old, broken on the verge of losing my home. I also have an education. Having made my way to chapter six, so far there's nothing in this book aimed at someone like me. In fact, it is just the opposite. You want me to spend money I do not have for things that I have already done while I was in graduate school. The only reason I'm writing this is because I can't afford the stamp for the letter. I know this will not all caps, resonate with the person who reads this. Thank you for your time, Peggy. Well, I mean, my, my, my team, a lot of times, you know, assumes that we don't need to respond to letter. I mean, we can't respond to every single thing. But mine, I mean, this really stopped me in my tracks. I mean, this really grabbed me. 65 years old, broken on the verge of losing my home. Well, I wrote back to this lady, and I hope she responds. I said, oh my, I was just giving your message. I'm the author of 48 Days to the Work You Love. <clears throat> and I, I told her that many, many of our readers and listeners are peers of hers, people who are 62 years old, 65 years old. And many of them have started wonderful encore careers. Now, yes, the workplace has changed, but right now there are so many companies that are looking for good people, people who have maturity, great work ethic, and who can be examples to the younger generation. Now, I also said, Peggy, I'm not sure where you got the idea that I want you to spend money. I mean, in fact, I, I, I said, I would be happy to refund the cost of the book, but you said somebody gave it to you. I don't want you to spend anything, but I want you to believe there are opportunities for you. 
And today's world mindset is more important than degrees or the economy. If you're like me, you probably got your degrees quite a few years ago. My degree was from the Ohio State University in 1969. And that really doesn't mean a whole lot to anyone today. They want to know how I think, how I solve problems, and what I've done in the last two years. Now, yes, I too completed my master's, my doctoral programs a little later on, but I did those just for personal enrichment, personal enrichment, not to impress an employer. Be clear on what unique value you bring to the table. Hold your head high. Let organizations know how you can help them accomplish their goals. And I told her, I said, please don't stop reading just yet. I mean, she talked about getting to chapter six in 40 Days to the Work You Loved. Chapters seven and eight tell you exactly how to promote yourself. It's a job search process that has worked for thousands of others. And I said, I'd love to get an update in a couple of weeks that you've found an ideal position. Now, it reminded me of something that happened. This is a couple of years ago, but there were, I, we got two notes from people on the same day. Now, coincidentally, they were both from ladies named Sarah. Now, here's the first one. And, and I, want to, I want to read these two, and then I'll comment a little bit. This one actually was sent to Dave Ramsey. Dear Dave, Thank you so much for recommending the book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. I started working for a new company eight months ago and was thrilled to be making my highest salary ever, $96,500. The problem was that I hated going into work every day. I knew that I needed to find different work, but feared that it would be incredibly difficult. The job market in Chicago is still pretty soft, and I wondered whether any chances whether my chances of finding new employment would be further jeopardized because I hadn't even worked for my current employer for a full year. I read 48 Days to the Work You Love and really put its principles into practice. On day 48, I had a phone interview for a position that I thought I'd love. Exactly one month later, they made me an offer. I start working there on Monday. By the way, I'll be earning $123,000 with four weeks paid vacation instead of two weeks at my old job, and my commute will be reduced by 50%. Best of all, I'm looking forward to the day-to-day work. I just loaned a copy of this book to my sister, and I'm talking it up to anyone who will listen. Please keep recommending fabulous books like this one. Sincerely, Sarah. Exactly the same day, we got this note. My husband and I purchased and read 48 Days almost a year ago, but I have to say that nothing in the job search has changed since using Mr. Miller's suggestions. 90% of the time, employers shut you out of the hiring process by not allowing phone calls or email correspondence. Even if you try to get in touch with them, they do not respond. After a while, it feels more like stalking them than a job search. For example, my husband recently applied to a job for which he was extremely qualified. He submitted his resume and cover letter early in the process, followed up with phone calls and emails only to be told that his credentials did not fit their needs, in quotations, via an impersonal email response. The fact that they wouldn't even talk to him is frustrating and disheartening. This is par for the course in job searching this year. It doesn't matter if I get a response to this email, but I want to be clear that the techniques in this book do not speak to the current hiring process. Sincerely, Sarah. That was interesting because in both cases, 
Again, same day, same book, both names of Sarah were spelled S-A-R-A. Usually Sarah has an H on the end. Neither of these did. I thought, how uncanny. But both of those, same book, one could not believe how the principles allowed her to go from a $96,000 year job to a $123,000 job, even though she'd only been working for eight months in the previous job. And another one says, sorry, these principles don't work. Dan doesn't know what he's talking about in today's hiring environment. Now back to Peggy and her desperate situation. She's 65 years old. She's reading 48 days to the work you love. Nothing resonates. Nothing works. She's broke and on the verge of losing her home. What does it take? What is the difference here? How can it be that the same information is received in such different ways? Now, I'm not just defending 48 days. I mean, my gosh, for some people, it's not going to make any sense, not going to do anything for them at all. But the difference is mindset. The difference is optimism, being clear on what value you bring, rather than feeling victimized and pointing fingers at the economy, the government, whoever, the companies out there that don't know what they're doing, taking responsibility for where you are, where you are now, where you've come from, where you're going to be tomorrow. This, this is very much an inner game. This is not just about getting the right course, the right book, the right seminar, the right education, the right degree. It's very much the equalizer is the inner game. What are you doing to position yourself? And, and the funny thing is, you know, we see in today's hiring environment where, again, we've got national unemployment at 3.7, which is unbelievably low. There are places like where I live here where it's 1.7. I mean, that's hard to even calculate and certainly a disadvantage for companies who are trying to hire good people. It's, they're that desperate to bring people on. How can somebody say there's no opportunities, nobody wants me, nobody will talk to me, nobody will respond to my calls in, an, in a hiring environment like this? If that's true, and then we have other people who are getting six, seven job offers, people who walk down the street. I mean, we, I talked to a manager of a, a restaurant, a, a very, very fine restaurant in Nashville just recently. They had in the previous week hired six people where four of them didn't show up the first day of work. Now that that's nuts. That means that those four people could walk right down the road and maybe get 50 cents an hour more or have a little better work schedule because they know they can just go door to door and get opportunities like that. Now that's for maybe jobs that you're not looking for, but that's true all the way up through the ranks. That's th true all the way up through the 150, 200, $250,000 positions. Companies are desperate to find people who know what value they have to bring to the table and are ready to go to work. Well, let me move on. Brad says, Dan, first of all, thanks for your, you, Thank you for all the hope, inspiration, and encouragement you give every week to your listeners of your podcast. You are truly a light in the world. I started a retail business after graduating college in 2003. After several profitable years, a large chain entered our market in a mall where we operated 
and sign a no-compete clause. I was out of business when my lease ran out. So foolishly, I started another different retail business in that same mall focusing on pet products. The business never turned the corner to profitability. So after many losses and a decade of experience in retail, we shuttered the store. I decided to take the safe route and took a job in state government in Illinois, where I've worked for the past five years. I've been promoted to a supervisory position, but in this state, supervisors, managers, a lot of times make less than the people they lead. It's a crazy system. I have a great boss, but the bureaucracy is killing me. My values do not align with the work I'm doing. I'm scared to make any moves that will disrupt my family. So I drift to work daily. After the pain I've caused my wife, I'm scared to move back toward entrepreneurship. I feel like I'm in an existential crisis. I don't know where to begin or what work I should pursue. Any advice is greatly appreciated. Now, I want to go to a note that I wrote to somebody I worked with just this last week. And where is the note? Oh, my gosh. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Okay. Now, this was from a gentleman who tried an entrepreneurial venture a couple years ago. It didn't work real well financially. They ended up in a really tough position. He took a job with a company. He is making about $150,000 a year in that. But he feels like he is absolutely having his soul crushed every day. But because of the pain that their family went through, his wife is not supportive of him going out on his own again. Now, he's a branding marketing guy, you know, the kind of thing that every company needs, easy to show the value, the ROI and all that. But he's trapped in that. And what he said to me was just an absolutely classic line that I'm going to save forever. He says, I don't want to lose what we have, but I also don't want to lose who I am. Wow. Now there's a little video that Joanna and I just did on what if you don't have spousal support? You can find it easily if you go to 48dayseagles.com. Now, right now, that community is closed until September 1st. But if you just go to 48dayseagles.com, 48dayseagles.com, and scroll all the way to the bottom of that landing page, you'll see a little video with Joanna and I sitting at our, um, Joanna and me sitting at our kitchen table, and we talk about what if you don't have spousal support. So I told this gentleman to go there and watch that. He did. But I also helped him reposition how he was thinking about what he was doing. I said, what if you, instead of leaving your job where you're a branding marketing guy, what if you propose to them that you work 20 hours a week instead of 40 and they cut your pay in half, freeing you up to then bring on two or three other clients to do the same kind of work for them, but you could exponentially increase your income. And then instead of simply having one customer, like you do now being an employee, you would have three or four customers. Well, he explained that to his wife and I got a note the next, the next morning, an amazing thing happened last night. 
I was talking to my wife about things, told her more about our conversation, what I'm trying to do. I explained how we're really talking about having three or four clients as a baseline. And so it's not really leaving my job. It's just kind of changing the model a little bit. For the first time in probably two years, instead of her going silent on me, she said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We wound up talking to each other for an hour or more, making dinner late, not because we were arguing about entrepreneurship, but because we were caught up in the excitement of this idea. Okay. Now, what I'm going to propose then going back to um, your question, Brad, is that you make a soft transition, that you don't just leave your job and terrorize your wife by going back into an entrepreneurship, some kind of idea that you've got. Stair step into that. A couple of weeks ago in the 48 Days Monday mentor call, I had on a young gentleman, I've referenced it a couple of times here, where he started with a high-end product that he is a distributor for. And he sells it. He created an online site. And he did that while working at his job, which he still is doing. He's been at the same job for 24 years. But he started this little sideline where he now is a distributor for a high-end bathroom product. And the net profit on that is generating over twice what his salary is. That's what I suggest that you do. Make a soft transition for yourself here. Don't just burn the boat and hope that something works out again. What you're going to have to do to rebuild trust with your wife is have some successes along the way. Don't put everything on the line But in the same way, like uh, my friend and client said, I don't want to lose what we have, but I also don't want to lose who I am. In that little video that Joanna and I have done, she talks about that. She knows that I would lose who I am if I tried to be a faithful employee. She knows how I'm wired. I love the challenge, the thrill, the anticipation, the not knowing if it's going to succeed. Those are all things that energize me and inspire me. She knows that if I were not in an environment where I could embrace those things, I would shrivel up and die. So you could transition, create a transition bridge rather than just burning the bridge. Now, I also had the pleasure this week of working with a gentleman who is a lifelong computer programmer. I want to just share this because it kind of is in line with what we're talking about here. He is the one who has been in a government position for 13 years and he's the one who is making $150,000 has very few demands on his time and uh, has great benefits. And obviously it seems a little weird to be thinking about walking away from a job like that. But again, he is just shriveling up. He can't stand it. He can't stand. He, he, he doesn't feel like he's producing work that merits being paid that. So he feels guilty about that. And he also feels like he's doing nothing that's new, creative, invigorating, at passionate at all. He's just a robot, just going through the motions. So, you know, he's getting the money, but that's all. Now, we talked about the fact that money alone is never enough compensation for investing your time and energy. There has to be more than that. There has to be a sense of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. There has to be a way to engage your passions and dreams. So in this case, you know, he was getting the money, but now he's starting to imagine what could it look like if he were to be compensated for his talent, but also could integrate passion 
and enthusiasm. So he's in a wonderful position to design the next chapter of his life. So what do you think? Did I recommend that he walk away from a $150,000 a year job at 62 years old or just stay there and tough it out as long as he can? Well, no, I suggested, and he certainly was already on board, that he create a transition for himself. That he, What he decided is that he's going to give his notice in a little more than two months. So he'll give a two-week notice. That gives him 60 days. And I said, oh my gosh, stir up the waters. Let recruiters know. Recruiters have been calling him constantly. Let recruiters know. Update your profile on LinkedIn. Get the word out there. Let everybody know you're a software developer and you're looking for a new opportunity. I said, that's going to turn up a whole lot of opportunities for not only jobs, but also contract and freelance work. So I said, find something that'll create an opportunity that may require 20 hours a week. So you have that kind of a bridge where it's not a regular job and hopefully you can even do the work remotely so you can your wife can start traveling more as you want to. But do that as kind of a bridge. Then you have the, the margin to really start developing ideas of your own. And he had some entrepreneurial ideas that he really wanted to work on as well. Well, hey, just a quick reminder here as we listen to a little bit of music that these are real life questions. I love going through these every week. I consider it an honor and a privilege to be going through these questions to unpack these real-life situations. We're going to just grab a couple more here. But if you've got a question or a success story you want to share, you know, shoot those in as well. We've had people telling about what their kids are doing this summer, which is really exciting to hear all the stories about kids who are doing little entrepreneurial ventures, what they're doing to generate income. A lot of people have figured out that rather than working at McDonald's getting 10 bucks an hour, they can do something uh, where they show up two days a week at the farmer's market and make twice what they could possibly make, you know, working a job like that. I mean, I love those stories, but whatever it is, success story or your question, just shoot that in to askdan at 48days.com. All right, let me grab a couple more here. Michael. Michael says, I've started with No More Mondays. I've read Man's Search for Meaning. I still don't get something. I can't just create my own money. I can't just wish it either. I can only get money when other people give it to me. I have no idea why they would do it. I want to let that sink in. There's a clue there. I develop software for a living, but we've had a bunch of these today. I actually like doing that to the point that I don't even consider becoming a manager as the next level of success in that I wouldn't have time for software then and I'd be spending all my time dealing with people. The problem is most people don't need software. Corporations do, but they have their pay bands. And for some reason, those bands seem pretty similar. So even switching jobs doesn't improve my income. What's my fault then? That I like tinkering with computers too much. As for dreams, I just don't have any. Can't even recall anything from my childhood. Wow. Ouch, ouch, and ouch. Well, <laughs> you, you say you, can't, you just can't create money. Well, yes, as a matter of fact, you can. You can create money. It, getting money does not mean that you're taking it from somebody else where now they have less and you have more. Now, money is actually created. One of these days, we'll do a, an episode where we really walk through how to do that. Money is created. We can create lots and lots of money. But you do that by doing work that matters for people who care. When you state, Michael, 
that I just can't create money. I can't just wish it either. I can only get money when other people give it to me. I have no idea why they would do it. Ouch. Wow. If you have no idea why they would do it, it's not likely to show up in your pocketbook or in your bank account. You have to be the first one to be extremely clear on why people would give you money. They give you money because you're doing some great work that somebody cares about. Short of that is not going to happen. You've got to figure that out, what that's going to look like. Well, let me um, address just one more. You know, you know. Let me let me do just one more here. We got a, several others that are kind of categorized. I'm going to save those till next week. John, ask this, and this is a real easy one to answer. And we're going to end with this. Uh, Dan, you recently wrote an endorsement for my book. Thank you for your generosity and taking the time to do that. It means so much to me. I jumped into the Eagles community on July 15th and have been enjoying it immensely. I listen to your podcast every week while I'm riding the lawn tractor, and I've come to enjoy leveraging that time for professional growth and development. My question, there's a lot of information out there about speaking fees in the business market. My niche is in the education market. I just landed my first paid keynote, $3,000, open for a university faculty development workshop. But I know that in the business market, Five to ten thousand dollars is a reasonable fee for a newer speaker. Where can I find information to help me set fees in the education market? Thank you, Dan John. Well, I can tell you exactly where to go. It's to our buddy Kent Julian. Go to paidtospeakconference.com. Paidtospeakconference.com. That's Kent Julian's site. Um, you're going to get a lot of information there. Now, Kent, the reason I direct you there is not only Kent is our go-to guy for speaking in general, but he is in the education market. That's all he's ever been in. He speaks at colleges, high schools, universities. That's where he is. Now, I also will say this, you know, you're getting $3,000. That's on the upper scale for universities. Now, in general, you know, three to $4,000 is going to be pretty decent in that arena. And what that means, though, if you're like Ken and you really know who the decision makers are, you can book three or four speaking engagements in a particular geographic area in the same week. And that still ends up being a pretty decent week. So you, you may not be able to move into that five to $10,000 range. I mean, I, re, I well, last year I got a $10,000 from... Um, oh my gosh, I can't think of it was one of the universities in, in um, Michigan, I went to Kalamazoo, Michigan, whatever universities in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, they did pay me $10,000, but it was because they had a grant from the Lilly Foundation for a particular seminar series that they were doing and they wanted me to come in. That would be really unusual, but check out paidtospeakconference.com with our buddy, Kent Julian, and he can give you a lot of information about the education arena. Well, let me go back up to our quotation for today. Just remind you of that. We'll wrap up with that today and come back. Got some more questions about specific issues in the workplace. That we'll get into tomorrow again if, or next week. If you've got questions, and just shoot those in to askdan at 48days.com. Quotation for today comes from, this comes from Thomas Edison, who said, Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Now, we've had questions today from people who are 62, 65, and a whole range of ages. It doesn't matter how old you are. 
you know, I, when I look at what's happening in the Eagles community, we've got people in there. You know, I don't really know how young. I know we've got people who are 18. I don't know if we've got people younger than that or not. We ought to do a survey. But I know we also have people in their 70s. We have a broad range of people. The common denominator is not age, gender, industry, degrees, education. The common denominator is mindset. It's people who say, I know there's something more that I'm put here to accomplish. I know that there's a spark within me that is prompting me to do something I've never done before. That's a common denominator. And that is what you're going to find. That's the thing that makes you a kindred spirit with others. You may not find it in your family or your work peers or your church even. Make sure you're putting yourself around people who will encourage you and cheer you on when you share your big dreams. Not a common thing, but you certainly can find those people. You can find them out there. Make sure that you are spending time with those. Well, hey, thanks for your ongoing questions here for your contributions for your participation in our online communities and for being a person who in fact does believe we can find or create work that is meaningful purposeful and profitable